1: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perles, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to Pax Britannica, the Scottish Revolution interview series. Covenanted Interests Across Three Kingdoms with Dr. Kirstine Mackenzie. Welcome to the Pax Britannica Scottish Revolution interview series. Today I'm joined by Dr. Kirstine Mackenzie historian of early modern British and Irish history. In 2017, Dr Mackenzie published her monograph, The Solemn League and Covenant of the Three Kingdoms and the Cromwellian Union, 1643-1663, to 1663, based on her doctoral thesis. More details can be found in the show notes, as well as on the website, paxbritannica.info. Dr Mackenzie, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: No problem, thank you for having me.
1: So, your monograph, The Solemn League and Covenant of the Three Kingdoms and the Cromwellian Union, 1643-1663, to 1663, was published in 2018. Now, I wonder if you could explain how the book came about, what was your process behind it?
2: Well, the book emerged from a PhD thesis in 2008, and subsequently evolved over a period of ten years. Um, it involved extensive research um, in archives across England, Scotland and Ireland, um, mainly because, obviously, it, it, it uh, focuses on Presbyterian church government and the covenanted interest in the 1640s and the 1650s on a three kingdoms basis. In 2001, when I started my PhD, I looked at religion in the 1650s more broadly, and there were two under-research groups at the time, which were Presbyterians and Catholics. Catholics um, were problematic on several grounds, um, just based on the very nature of the surviving material left behind, and also because obviously Catholicism was illegal, so they, they sort of went underground. So I wasn't sure whether I would get access to source material, and secondly, what kind of source material I would have to work with. And of course, being a PhD student, that can be very, very daunting. Whereas, in contrast, if you look at the Scottish Kirk, um, there are hundreds of Scottish church records in the National Archives of Scotland, and they're very, very accessible. And so the decision was made on that basis. In addition to that, um, when I explored um, the covenanters and, and the sort of language they used in the histography, um, I noticed that the term of the Three Kingdoms was used an awful lot, particularly in the Songling Covenant and I thought to myself well this must mean something and although I'd done the Three Kingdoms sort of a Three Kingdoms course on the Stuart era um, at the University of Aberdeen as an undergrad I thought well this mention of the Three Kingdoms must mean something to the Covenanters specifically so that's why I um, decided to investigate that particular angle and then set out to explore why this was indeed the case that they emphasized the three kingdoms.
1: So the book was based on your PhD. So let's let's go back a little bit further. Why did you choose to study the Presbyterianism of this period? And what was it about the Three Kingdoms approach in particular that appealed to you?
2: Well it was it was um, when when I began to uh, when I began to look at religion in the sixteen fifties Um, uh, Back in 2001, when I started my PhD, Uh, more broadly there were two under research groups, um, which were Presbyterians and Catholics. Catholics were problematic on several grounds. um, By the very nature of the sort of um, lives that they lived, they often lived underground. They lived uh, out with the detection from the authorities, and also because of cat. The Catholic archives I was unsure whether I would get access to source material and what kind of source material I would have. So I then looked at the Scottish Kirk and I looked at the available source material there for the 1650s and found that in the National Archives of Scotland there are hundreds of surviving Scottish Kirk records from that period and so the decision was made on the grounds of the availability and access of, uh, of the source material. The Three Kingdoms approach um, came out of the fact that when I started doing my literature review and survey stography I noticed that the term Three Kingdoms was used in the Solomonian Covenant a number of times. And although I'd done a, a course on the Three Stuart Kingdoms as an undergrad, at the University of Aberdeen, I realised that in particular context of the Covenanters, the use of the term Three Kingdoms uh, was integral to, the, to obviously what they were doing, because they mentioned it multiple times in the Southern Covenant. So that was the basis under which I decided to explore this further and explore why uh, this idea of the Three Stuart Kingdoms was so important to them.
1: Now, you've mentioned the term covenanted interest, and it's used throughout your book as well. Now, could you just explain what you mean by that term?
2: Yes, um, covenanted interest um, is a term that I use to describe the adherence of the Song League in covenant, but those in particular that advocated Presbyterian church government, whether they be ministers or whether they be lay members of those churches or supporters of the sort of Anglo uh, Scottish alliance more widely um, which upheld this uh, perspective.
1: Something that's become very apparent over the course of the interview series is how vibrant the scholarship has been over the last decade or so. Now, would you be able to briefly summarize where your book fits within this, this growing historiography?
2: Yeah. So in particular, my monograph draws attention to the bonds and the support structures that existed between the covenanted interest in England, Scotland, and Ireland throughout the 1640s and 1650s. And it examines the reaction, the covenanted interest to the actions and policies of the Commonwealth and Protectorate from an integrated Three Kingdoms perspective drawing attention to the links, similarities and differences uh, and in, in between all the three kingdoms. Um, regarding the wider historiography, um, nobody had been foolish enough uh, to attempt <laughs> this before, um, so I, I decided that I would. Um, but uh, where, it, where it fits in is, is there are three different historiographical traditions and they all interlink. But as I say, I was one of the first to to sort of bring it together. Um, So with regards to English Presbyterianism, where my book fits into that historiographical tradition is that my book builds on the recent scholarship by Dr. Elliot Vernon and Professor Ted Valance, who who, who had already argued by that stage that English Presbyterians should be seen more in a positive light and that the covenant had a significant place in English society in the 1640s and 1650s Um, however in contrast to dr ellie vernon and professor ted balance what i did uh, in that tradition was to extend the analysis of presbyterianism in england in those decades beyond london and look at the presbyterian class system throughout the whole of england and um, and drawing particular attention to the presbyterians in lancashire cheshire and west midlands because that in particular, those th- those uh, Presbyterians have links with Scotland, have links with Ireland, so th- that was that was a, a different angle that I thought I to take. Um, with regards to Scotland, um, there had been a lot of lot of literature on the Covenanters um, before I embarked on my PhD thesis, and when I was 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 writing the book, Um, but mainly for the 1650s, um, although the historiography has now changed, at the time the book was published, mainly people focused on the Protestant Resolutionary Crisis, which was this internal crisis of infighting between two factions of Scottish Kirk in the 1650s, between two different interpretations of the Covenant within the Kirk itself or focusing on the impact of liberty of conscience on Scotland at a national level and a micro level. Um, um, Whereas my work, what it does is it looks at 1650s from the Scottish Presbyterian perspective, but it draws comparisons and similarities with uh, the, the, the Presbyterians in England and Ireland. So mine's more of a sort of what you'd call outward looking sort of perspective on on Scottish Kirk for the 1650s. With regards to the uh, Ulster Presbyterian tradition, within Ulster itself there is a very strong tradition of an awareness of the growth of Presbyterianism in the 1650s but this hasn't really been acknowledged by historians more widely, I don't think, in a Three Kingdoms context. Um, People still argued that Presbyterianism was a failure in the 1640s and 1650s. Ironically, um, it was Ulster that completely bucked this trend. Um, as As we will see, the Ulster Presbyterian Church just takes off and it grows and it grows and it grows. Uh, and as I say, this is very well known at um, sort of a local level in Ulster, but not maybe quite so well known uh, by others out with um, Ulster itself. So basically to sum up, my um, book took, um, took um, the English Presbyterians the uh the presbyterians in ireland and scottish kirk and sought to um and sought to see the similarities and differences and the connections between all these groups um and as i say uh because the three kingdoms meant something to them um it, it wasn't just some random phrase that they used I, I sort of thought that there must be something there so that's where it fits in the historiography
1: now something that your book makes very clear is that the roots of anglo-scottish protestant collaboration for lack of a better word stretch much further back than the solemn league and covenant or the national covenant before the reign of charles First or, or even his father now i wonder if you could expand on these roots how far back are we talking
2: well it goes all the way back to the scottish reformation in the 1560s um basically the roots of this sort of Anglo-Scottish perspective that I outline in my book um, mainly comes from uh, Scottish reformers like John Knox um, and others, who um, obviously, after Scotland becomes Protestant in the 1560s, they want to build closer ties with Elizabeth I in England. And then, of course, it becomes apparent to many Scots although it's not obviously officially confirmed, that it is likely that James VI is going to succeed her. So there's this um, movement within uh, the Scottish Reformation at the time, between the 1560s and 1603, where they try and build closer ties with England. And the way that John Knox and his followers looked at it was, was that this was part of providential destiny. God was making this happen because England and Scotland were destined to unite against the Catholic Antichrist. This was all part of God's plan. However, in England, although there was obviously an English Reformation, they had a different take on it. And their take on it was that England was God's chosen nation. It wasn't a British structure at all. It was just England. England was the chosen nation by God. And although this is all the way back in the sort of between the 1560s and the, the 1590s, what this points to is a, a problem that we, we end up having with the Anglo-Scottish relationship when we get to 1640s and 1650s. This sort of, um, this uh this comes back um, as a as a uh, uh, this comes back um, to to, uh, to sort of haunt the, uh, the 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 the, the uh, Anglo Scottish relationship. It's something that obviously was uh, you know it's 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 something that's going to creep back later on.
1: You've mentioned it a few times, but I'm curious if you could expand a little bit more on your reasoning about why you consider the Solemn League and Covenant to be a three kingdoms document uh, and what ramifications did this three kingdoms approach actually have?
2: Yes, so um, I first and foremost um, consider the Solemn and Covenant uh, drawn up in 1643 as a document that emphasises federative union. And what that means is, is that under this union, Scotland and England have their own parliaments, laws, churches, but cooperate on mutual beneficial issues, such as the military or religious issues. So for example, for religion, you have the Westminster Assembly, which is convened in London, and they put together an Anglo-Scottish liturgy to be used in the new Presbyterian system in England, but also the Scottish Kirk, and it's drafted by both uh, by by both churches. But there's also a joint Anglo Scottish military effort, whereby the Covenanters send an army into the north of England to assist the English Parliament. Yet at the same time, the, the Scots also um, send an army into Ulster also to assist. The English Parliamentary War effort. Um, So it's very, very much a a Three Kingdoms document and of course with Ulster, on top of that, uh, with the English Parliament's blessing, because you have to remember that Ireland is by law a colony of England uh, at that time, Um, so the Scots just couldn't go in there um, as, 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 as they would wish. But they are, with the English Parliament's blessing for a few years, um, Scottish ministers are very welcome to come into Ulster and preach the gospel uh, in Ireland. So it is very, very much a Three Kingdoms document that takes in uh, England, Scotland and Ireland, albeit that Ireland is treated as a colony. Um, it, It does encompass all Three Kingdoms.
1: So if we fast forward a few years, the Anglo-Scottish alliance, backed as it is by the Solemn League and Covenant, it, it falls apart quite drastically. Now, I appreciate this is a complex question, but why do you think this alliance failed? And do you think that this failure was inevitable?
2: I, I, I wouldn't say it's inevitable, um, because to say it's inevitable would suggest that Cromwell's rise was inevitable. Um uh, there, there were obviously a lot, of, a lot of problems um, in 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 the alliance. But one of the things they didn't prepare for was uh, the the rise of Oliver Cromwell. Now, traditionally, um, in the sort of Whig historiographical tradition, Cromwell is put on a pedestal as a hero. He's put on a pedestal as a man we put the country on the road to parliamentary democracy. Um, This is not how the Covenanters thought at all, in fact, the complete opposite. And this is part, he is very much central to the reason as to why the Anglo-Scottish Alliance failed. Um, Basically, two interpretations of God's providence began to emerge around uh, about 1644, which reflected two different perspectives on the relationship between England and Scotland. One was favoured by Presbyterians in throughout the Three Kingdoms, which was one of a joint Anglo-Scottish war effort and a federative union. The other was a more, let's say, homo-centric form of providence, where he and later the New Model Army, which of course was founded in 1645, were central to England's destiny and was an Anglo-centric form of union throughout the Three Kingdoms. So again, this goes back to what we were saying earlier about the two different interpretations of uh, Providence. You know, England stands alone, England is God's chosen nation, and Cromwell represents that ideal because in, in his view of providence and in the very sort of Anglo-centric interpretation of providence, he is God's chosen one, he is the instrument of God that, that brings, about, um, brings about the victory at Marston Moor. whereas with the Presbyterians, the Three Kingdoms, it is very much a joint Anglo-Scottish war effort and they believe in a balanced federative union. Now, that's something to keep in mind for later on. Um, So these two interpretations uh, emerged uh, and clashed um, with the aftermath of the Battle of Morrison Moor. As I say, Cromwell saw the victories primarily his as a result of the actions of his cavalry, with the Scots playing a supporting part in his opinion. For Cromwell, Marston Moor was an English victory, however, for the covenanted interest, Marston Moor was the result of a joint Anglo-Scottish effort, and was victory for the Three Kingdoms. It is fair to say that uh, by the Battle of Naseby in June 1645, the more Anglo-centric interpretation was accepted in England, with even an English Presbyterian, Edward Bowles, talking about English providential destiny over a joint Anglo-Scottish one. Any efforts by the Covenanters to correct this perspective uh, fell on deaf ears. In fact, um, you had a, a propagandist called David Buchanan who wrote this marvellous sort of 300-page long, um, very um, sort of taking this sort of Cromwell perspective apart and trying to show the English that they were working together; that England and Scotland were friends, and that this was a joint effort. Unfortunately for him, it falls on deaf ears. And there's another couple of pamphlets that come back that argue with it. Um, but viewing this process and viewing later processes, whereby Cromwell um, goes above the Westminster Assembly and goes directly to the House of Commons, uh, asking for liberty of conscience. In Presbyterian eyes, the uh, the independents are seen as not as promoters of religious liberty, which is again what they're traditionally seen as, because you have to remember as well another aspect of the Whig interpretation is that Promo believes in religious toleration. Now, we know it's a bit more complicated than that. The liberty of conscience doesn't necessarily equate with religious toleration, but that is what's usually. Um, usually said. Um, And in that sense the Presbyterians are absolutely um, abhorred about liberty of conscience because they don't see liberty of conscience as the way we would see it as a form of religious toleration. They see it as um, sort of a form of anarchy where you have small independent congregations doing their own thing without oversight from larger bodies so for example in the presbyterian church you would have a synod a presbytery and then you would have the parish whereas as far as the presbyterians are concerned with congregationalism the congregation is self-governing but it's chaotic because there's nobody overseeing that individual congregation So they don't see it as religious toleration, they see it as a byword for anarchy. Um, So they see Cromwell as a very subversive influence, particularly when he went above the Westminster Assembly, and you have to remember the Westminster Assembly have rules, protocols, um, things could not be discussed out with the Assembly, until things had been decided. There there were rules and there were protocols. Cromwell went way above that, ignored the Westminster Assembly, went straight to the House of Commons and asked for liberty of conscience. So for the Presbyterians, Cromwell is seen as chaotic, he's seen as destructive, he's seen as a troublemaker. And this really is one of the central reasons why uh, the Anglo-Scottish alliance falls apart Um, because, of course, Cromwell gains momentum. The new model army win victories at Naseby, People become more convinced about Cromwell's role, Cromwell's successes. And unfortunately, what happens is the Scottish Covenanters do get sidelined, and this is part of the problem. However, on a more positive note... The Presbyterians don't just sit down and take this and go, well, okay, that's that's uh, Cromwell's one, you know, we're, that's it. We're we're packing our bags, um, and we're going back to We're going back to our churches in London, or we're going back to Scottish Kirk. Car- no, that's not how it works. What they do is Crom as Cromwell's trying to pull apart structures surrounding the Westminster Assembly and also uh, the military structures um, of the anglo scottish Alliance. Um, the, um those adhering to the Anglo-Scottish Alliance and um, those adhering to Presbyterian Church government then decide to speed up their, um, their publication of the Anglo-Scottish liturgy. They want to get it done. They want to get it out there. So that's their response. It's, it's, it's quite a determined response. Um, it's not mealy-mouthed. They don't go and hide under the bed from scary Cromwell. Um, they, they they dig their heels in and they go no, we're going to get this done. And I actually quite admire them for that. Um, uh, their, their determination. Okay. Um. So when they're forming the uh, anglo scottish liturgy, um, they basically, unbeknownst to them, what what they did was that they they pulled together documents that are now still used in Christian churches all over the world. Um, and it, it's still with us to this day. So um, as they were doing this in response to Cromwell, they, they created a catechism, a book of Psalms and a directory of worship. And that is no mean, mean feat. Um, that takes quite a lot to, 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 to do um that that takes quite a lot of time to do so um so they are determined and they, they do put their they do dig their heels in and they get the job done and the important thing about the catechism and psalms and the directory of worship is is that it they play a key role in supporting those who want to continue to support presbyterian church government throughout the 1650s because of course in their eyes, the church completely collapses. It goes into chaos in that decade, and these documents are like a life raft for these people. They they cling on to these documents for hope. So that's that's the 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 the, the sort of reaction that they, they they had there, and that's a long term um, impact of it. Um, as well, um, in addition to the, the increasing pressure that the, 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 the Anglo-Scottish Alliance and Presbyterians more generally felt from Cromwell in the 1640s. Um, Presbyterian church government in England and Ulster continue to grow. As I say, they don't hide away and hide under the bed from bad Cromwell, they, they, they keep, on, keep on going. So, um, English classical Presbyterian, Presbyterianism emerges in the West Midlands. There's also the structure in Lancashire, um, which was established. It continues to grow. More Scottish ministers are attracted to Ulster. And although there were notable problems with supplied ministers from the General Assembly, there is a marked increase in Presbyterians in the region by 1646, covering Antrim, Down, Derry, Tyrone, and, and even extended into Donegal. Both Ulster and English Presbyterianism was supported by a grassroots petitioning um, petitioning movement and support from local landed elites, so that it's basically sort of a do-it-yourself culture. We're not going to get support from central government, we're, we're just going to do it ourselves, and I admire that. Um, but as I say, however, with the increasing dominance of Cromwell, and the new model army and political and religious affairs, it is becoming apparent even by 1645 that the government is being driven by the private interests of a few men, rather than the public interest in the three Stuart kingdoms. And I'm sort of taking that straight from um, perspectives of the Presbyterians themselves. They are seeing uh, uh, as they see it, a clique of men uh, that surround Cromwell and they are are rising in the ascendancy and they are not governing the three-stroke kingdoms in the public interest. Um, The independents are seen as people with little respect for authority, they're seen as self-governing cliques, Um, and as I say, the religious congregations are seen as uh, as a name independent would suggest, completely independent and devoid of any oversight or control. So therefore, they're symbols of danger, chaos, and subversion. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? The men and women of the Golden Age of Piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? Their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates we examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
1: So far, we've mostly focused on the Presbyterians and the English parliamentarians, but of course the monarchy is a third party, a counterweight. So I'm curious, what role did the king and the institution of the monarchy, the crown, what role did they play in this dance, almost, between the parliamentarians and the Presbyterians? I'm thinking specifically in the aftermath of of the regicide.
2: Yeah, well the monarchy played an important role to the covenanted interest because it symbolized the natural order in society the king was at the top of course then you have the nobles and you have the church and then you have everybody else so there's this sort of um sort of i suppose a pyramid if you like that symbolized uh the natural order in society and that's how it had been for centuries. and this should be contrasted with the corruption and dysfunctional, dysfunctionality of the Cromwellian regime later on. Um, the role of the monarchy in a covenanting context was to maintain the federative union and maintain the peace. Um, so that's how the covenanters saw the role of the monarch. It was to maintain the League covenant and its federative union, but also maintain the peace. Um, but there's a key problem here because, of course, Charles I. saw it completely differently. So he saw himself as the creator and arbiter of the law, whereas the Covenanters saw him as the overseer of the law. So there's this this dispute about the role of the monarchy between uh, the Covenanters and um, the monarchy, which is something which reverberates down. Uh, when we when we get past the regicide and and we, we get on to uh, we get on to Charles II, the execution of the king in January 1649 triggered a period of accommodation between the royalists and the Presbyterians. Recent um, historiography is focused on the Love Plot of 1651 based in London, but notes um, that I uncovered. Um, of an interrogation of a Mr. Thomas Cook revealed fears of a Presbyterian royalist insurrection planned across England and most notably the north of England. The English Commonwealth was well, well aware of the correspondence between the Scottish and English Presbyterians, but also feared insurrections in Ulster, where there was sympathy for the new monarch. Not only did the regime bolster its military presence in the north of England at this time, but also uh, but also bolstered security on the Isle of Man, which I thought was really quite interesting. The Isle of Man is a, you know, a small piece of land, but the fact that they've sent an entire garrison of soldiers over to the Isle of Man after the king's execution just shows you what on tender hooks the the uh, new English Republic is um, with with this central uh Presbyterian-Royalist alliance. The state paper, Marcus Politicus, makes a strong attempt to divide the English Presbyterians from Scottish Presbyterians through propaganda. So what what the editor of Marcus Politicus tries to do is that he tries to play them off one against the other, the English Presbyterians and Scottish Presbyterians. Via the newspapers to try and, and, and divide um, the covenanted interest. Um, the English Commonwealth is terrified because you have to remember that after they executed Charles I, effectively the English Commonwealth is a pariah state. Nobody wants anything to do with it because what they have done is absolutely abhorrent. I mean, of course. Later on, further down the line, we have the French Revolution. So for us today, when we think about the execution of a monarch, we think, oh, well, you know, that's what happens with revolutions. But no, this was the first time that this had actually happened, that a people of a country, in this case, England, albeit a small number of people, uh, Cromwell and his friends, decide to execute the king This this sends shockwaves throughout Europe. So, effectively, after committing that act, the English Republic is a pariah state. But it also has this problem because Scotland, immediately upon hearing the execution of Charles I, declares Charles I's son, Charles II, King of Britain, Ireland and France. Now, note the fact that they call him King of Britain, and Ireland, That is going to send them on a collision course with the new English Republic. So that's the background to that. So basically, the, the English Republic is paranoid and terrified of a Royalist Presbyterian Alliance because they know they have the potential to seriously endanger the existence of this new English Republic. So this is why um, they are Investigating Presbyterian plots. This is why um, they are putting garrisons on the Isle of Man between Ulster and Scotland. They are terrified of a Royalist Presbyterian insurrection. So basically, um, the the Presbyterians also come under serious suspicion by the English Republic um, after the regicide because clearly we have all been talking to each other, and this is something that I uncover in my monograph. There is a pamphlet that was published by the Auster-Presbyterians. There is a pamphlet published by the Scottish Kirk, and there's a pamphlet published by the London Presbyterians. All condemning the execution of Charles I, all recognising the legitimacy of Charles II, and although they are written separately, it is completely obvious with the language that they use in these pamphlets that they have been talking to each other, that they have been planning, that they have been conversing, that they have um, sort of uh, spoken to each other about what they're going to write and what kind of message they are going to send to the English Republic, which is basically that they're not going to recognize a government, i.e. the English Republic, that was established without a king or a house of lords. Well this is why as I say the the um the Presbyterians come under serious suspicion by the English Republic and the English Republic is quite scared of what they might do next. So ultimately this Presbyterian royalist accommodation failed between the uh between uh the uh between, between all different parties in the three kingdoms. And in particular in England, was that the, the Republican engagement, which was an oath of loyalty to the, uh, the uh, English Republic, fractured any alliance that could potentially uh, have, have existed, uh, not just between Presbyterians in England, but Presbyterians in all three kingdoms. Um, because they focused a lot of their propaganda to the north of England, which is very, very telling, um, the English Republic. Um, And what happened was, was that some of the Presbyterians uh, decided to carry on resistance to the English Republic and not take the oath of acknowledgement of its legitimacy others fearing that they were going to lose their wages, because you've got to bear in mind that under the English parliamentary system, although English Presbyterianism wasn't officially erected, the Presbyterian ministers in England were all paid out with the English Parliament's coffers. So a lot of them realising that if they didn't take this oath of loyalty, that they would lose their wages. So faced with that, a split begins between the English Presbyterians, particularly the north of England, which then impacts on Scottish Presbyterians' ability to build alliances with them in order to topple the English Republic. So it's it's all very very cleverly done. Um, but if you think the uh, English Republic is out of the woods with regards to a Presbyterian royalist accommodation, you would be wrong. It just moves further north. And in 1652, there is an emergence of a rebellion in the Scottish Highlands known as Glencairn's Rising. And again, this takes place um, when the English Commonwealth is least expecting it. and it's fearing this rebellion in the Highlands. Now this mainly consisted of Royalists and on this occasion the Royalists are driving this accommodation with the Presbyterians. They're the ones in the driving seat this time. Um, So the English Commonwealth again is on tender hooks waiting for another accommodation between Royalists and Presbyterians in Scotland but this fails. mainly because the Presbyterian ministers complained that in Glencairn's declaration in support of the king and the rising, there was very little mention of the Solemn Covenant. So as far as they were concerned, uh, they couldn't support the rebellion. So, um, so in reality, um, the commonwealth's fears of a Presbyterian royalist alliance were lar- largely unfounded. Um, in England, again, a lot of the royalists in England were very, very cynical about English Presbyterians. They didn't trust them. Um, in England, the, the Presbyterians, as I say, were funded by the English Parliament, so that automatically made them untrustworthy to secret societies such as the Sealed Knot, which emerged in the 1650s. and um, and. The sort of royalists, English royalists that occupied the sealed knot, um, were the sort that didn't like the Sondland Covenant, um, didn't like the Sondland Covenant at all. So unsurprisingly, they didn't invite um, Presbyterians to join them. Um, However, and I'm sorry if I've gone through all of this, but it is very, very important to understand why this Presbyterian royalist accommodation didn't work because effectively, because they both couldn't agree um, to stand up to the English Republic, the monarchy wasn't restored until 1660. If they had managed to actually agree on something and they'd managed to to give it their all and not fall out with each other, um, potentially, they probably would have had the potential to topple the regime, Um, but um, luckily for the, the English Republic, um, the Royalists and the Presbyterians don't really get on. The English Republic could create splits um, between the English Presbyterians and Scottish Presbyterians and, and, and quite easily. And so therefore, um, the accommodation didn't work and the, uh, the, the monarchy wasn't restored until 1660
1: that's absolutely one of the more interesting what ifs of this period if they had managed to get on i'm curious would you be able to expand a bit more on how people in who were part of the covenanted interest how they viewed cromwell because i'm i'm presuming that this differed depending on where in the three kingdoms the covenanted interest was
2: yeah um absolutely um uh, to, to begin with, unsurprisingly, of course, with the regicide, um, the the English Commonwealth, and of course Cromwell's role in in the regicide is it's seen as a highly unnatural act, because um, of course, as I've said before, nobody had murdered the king before, and it was seen as a violent and murderous affair, and as it sent shockwaves around Europe. Indeed, uh, the overturning of long held traditions of governance and law by military force were seen as the dictates of private individuals. And this was seen across um, all Presbyterians, whether they be English, whether they be from Ulster or whether they be um, in Scotland. This is this comes from the pamphlets that they all individually wrote but were coordinated. Um, So, in that sense, there's unity. They're against the of Charles I, seeing it as a violent and murderous affair. But at the same time, as well, they also are unified on the fact that Cromwell has overturned, unlawfully, long held tradition of governance uh, by military force, and it's the whole trial and execution and the role of the military is seen as the dick of private individuals. It's certainly not in the public interest. Um, so the Covenant across the Three Kingdoms openly declare their loyalty to Charles I uh, and his successor, Charles II, and they openly declare that Charles II um, is King of Britain, Ireland and France. And of course, thereby sort of snubbing the existence of the English Republic, which puts them on a collision course. Um, so so the, the the Charles I is executed in 1649. Of course, the Royalists are not happy with this. In fact, the majority of people in Britain and Ireland are not happy with this. But the first problem that, that the English Republic have for their own survival is Ireland. Um, there is uh, uh, again a threat of a mainly royalist presence in Ireland, which could um, take in support from from other parts of Europe, um, like a sort of sort of invasion force, if you like, that would go from Ireland in into Britain to overturn the Republic and so Cromwell was dispatched to Ireland fairly quickly and he reached there in September 1649. Um, As your listeners are probably aware um, the name Cromwell is uh, not very popular in Ireland (laughs) let's say. Um, You know I would uh, advise caution if you ever want to get into discussion about Cromwell over there. It is a very um it it, it is a very uh, it, it is a very it can be a very very difficult subject for very very good reasons. Um Cromwell was less than nice to the Irish, let's just put it that way. Um he in fact he was downright off. Okay. But uh the, 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 but um, the Presbyterians also saw Cromwell as awful um, in, 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 and his actions in Ireland. Uh, they actually saw Cromwell as an instrument of Satan. And he was used to test the faith of the Presbyterians. Now, bear in mind, it's to do with them. It's test the faith of the Presbyterians. What he's doing to the Irish in Ireland is neither here nor there. um uh, in in Patrick Adair's diary. It's all about Cromwell being an instrument of Satan, coming over to test the faith of the Presbyterians. So interestingly, the defeat of the Royalists at the Siege of Drogheda, which is um, in September uh, 1649, is seen as a righteous righteous judgment of God, like Cromwell, because Cromwell says on the defeat of these Royalists that, Killingly, it's a right, right, righteous judgment of God upon these barbarous wretches, which of course he means the Irish, interestingly, which is confusing um, um, in, in that sense. I think Cromwell's purposefully playing a double game there, um, but that, that's for another day. Um, so, in Adair's view, the defeat of the royalist Sidroboda. Um, was seen as a righteous judgment of God by unjust hands. So although the defeat of the royalists is seen as a righteous judgment of God it is done by unjust hands and of course the unjust hands are Oliver Cromwell. So he's not popular with them either Um, and more broadly speaking when Patrick Adair does talk about Cromwell he does again see Cromwell is not bound by law and order in his actions. He's very chaotic when he comes into Ireland. comes with lightning speed and it's chaos has landed. Um, So again this goes back to the Presbyterian views of the 1640s of Cromwell being subversive, being um, an instrument of chaos, subversion and danger and Adair carries on this um, perspective when he gets to when Cromwell gets to Ireland. Um, The Ulster-Presbyterian ministers continually refuse to take the Republican engagement, which of course is the oath which they have to testify that they will recognize the English Republic, but the Ulster-Presbyterians say no, because they're loyal to the monarchy. So they go, no, we're not taking it. Um, And they they confess to the face of the then um, commanding officer in Ireland, that the true government of the kingdoms lies in a monarchy, a house of lords and a properly constituted house of commons. That's important, properly constituted governments. They often, they clearly see the English Republic as dysfunctional, they see it as corrupt. They see it as not being proper governance um, above and beyond the, the, the execution. After being summoned by the Commonwealth authorities several times between 1652 and 1653, the Ulster Presbyterians continually refused to take the engagement. And the only thing that lets them off the hook is the fact that in April 1653, Cromwell dissolves the Rump Parliament. So in effect, after the dissolution of the Rump Parliament, uh, the need to take the Republican engagement disappears with it. So the Ulster-Presbyterians don't take it at all um, uh, by default. So that's basically the, the sort of Ulster-Presbyterian take on Cromwell and Ireland. But after Cromwell was finished with Ireland, he then turned his attention to Scotland because that was the next threat to the fledgling English Republic. So Cromwell was dispatched to the Scottish border in July 1650. The Kirk had already declared the King's execution as unnatural, but as he was making his way towards the border, the Scottish Kirk thought they would just helpfully remind him that the King's execution was unnatural, and continued to recognise Charles II as a rightful heir. And they continued to state that a federative union between England and Scotland was the best way to run the country, basically. So what they're basically saying is, we still recognise the secure monarchy, we still recognise a federative union, and we still think the execution was really, really bad, and it was awful. So basically, as Cromwell's approaching the border, Scottish Kirk is saying, you can't intimidate us, we're not changing our position, and this is what we still think. So the Kirk declared, when Cromwell crosses the border, when he officially crosses the border, the Kirk then sent him another message, another letter, saying that the Cromwellian invasion is illegal and that Scotland has a natural right to self-defence. The Kirk argues against Cromwell's view of justifying the invasion. Now Cromwell Uh, justified his invasion in the sense that he said he was coming as a friend, as a liberator, because poor Scotland was being oppressed by the Scottish Kirk, and so the Scottish people needed to be liberated by the Scottish Kirk. But the Scottish Kirk replies, Scotland is already free as an independent country and does not need to be liberated by the English. Even after the defeat of the Royalists and the Presbyterians at the Battle of Worcester in September 1651, the Kirk as a whole continued to declare against the invasion and occupation of Scotland as a breach of covenant. Because, of course, as Cromwell invades Scotland and begins to occupy it, effectively he's drawing Scotland into the English Republic. So the federative union between England and Scotland begins to dissolve. And this is what they're trying to resist. Um, so they, they declare that the invasion is illegal. They declare that, uh, that they still believe in federative union. Um, but the Commonwealth, realizing this sort of, that they can't just sort of dump an army across the border and occupy the lowlands of Scotland and you know, everybody will be happy, decides in 1652 to launch what is called the Tender of Incorporation, which is um, sort of where the sort of Chromalian regime asked, uh, would you like to be part of the English Republic? And if so, um, please tell us whether you would or you wouldn't. Now, bear in mind that this was a rhetorical question It wasn't yet, you didn't get the option of yes or no, it had to be yes. I mean, it it, it was, you know, an army was occupying Edinburgh, Glasgow by this point. They weren't in a position to argue. So although there was the question, would you like to be part of the English Republic? The the sort of majority of boroughs and shires of Scotland said yes. There were a few brave... um, boroughs and shires that did dissent, and and one of them was Glasgow, and they they said that they uh, requested that the Protestant religion remain unaltered. And what they mean by that is that they're rejecting liberty of conscience, because you've got to bear in mind that when Cromwell's soldiers are coming across the border, they're carrying with them this belief that they need to promote liberty of conscience. So when... Glasgow refuses the tender and one of the reasons why they refuse it is because they are quite happy with the Scottish Kirk as it stands and they say that they want the Protestant religion to remain unaltered um, as established by the Kirk. So they reject liberty of conscience. Of course, they are in the end forced to change their dissent. From the tender to an ascent. Unfortunately in their case it involved a, an accidental fire which burnt down the third of Glasgow um, and uh, they needed funds to rebuild the town so they they had to uh, assent to the tender um, uh, eventually um, and Edinburgh for example also dissented but then changed their mind because the Chromalians put soldiers outside the building where the decision was being made. So if somebody put soldiers outside your house, how would you feel? So, of course, the answer was yes. <laughs> um, so, so, yes, all the, all the dissenting ones, which were few and far between, um, were eventually overturned and the, the tender Corporation was carried. And what that meant was, was that Scotland was officially incorporated into the English Republic. Scotland as a separate sort of nation, kingdom, entity was gone, um, it, it was part of the, the English Republic. Um, but you, the, the, the English Commonwealth knew it was on shaky ground, It knew it was on thin ice, so what it had to do was seek out individuals that would work with the regime so it handpicked uh, various individuals. Um, one of them was Patrick Gillespie. And he gets promoted to being principal of Glasgow University. But Glasgow University don't get any say about it. They Commonwealth just go right there to new principal, whether you like it or not. And Robert Bailey, who is the the in Glasgow University Times, absolutely furious. He says, We've never heard anything like this. Traditionally, the University of Glasgow makes its own mind up who its principal is going to be, and in conjunction with the, the, the town and the wider community, never have we had a government coming in saying that is your principal. So that, that's what happened. Um, but Patrick Gillespie plays an important role in, in, um, in the, in the Cromwellian regime in Scotland. In England, um, in England,
3: uh,
2: of course, uh, in England, uh, Cromwell is still seen as, uh, obviously a problem because he's still promoting liberty of conscience and he's, and the English Republic itself is now promoting liberty of conscience. And although the Westminster Assembly by 1652 is... Uh, very much dominated by independence, Um, it is obvious that um, by 1652 the Westminster Assembly itself is no longer performing Presbyterian ordinations, in fact if you look at the book from 1648 to 1652, you'll find that the number of Presbyterian ordinations gradually decreased, which shows the sort of rising of the independence, independency and liberty of conscience. Um, and and what, what was interesting about this was I found a, in in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, I found a certificate by a, a, an English classist written in 1652. And what it suggested to me was, was that the London classes had basically, um, had very, very little to do with the Westminster Assembly. When you look at his particular ordination, it was signed by his London Classes and the London Provincial Assembly. It wasn't signed by the Westminster Assembly. So obviously by 1652, there has been a breach with the Presbyterians in England and they are just doing their own thing in their own church. Um, and, and they've completely left the Westminster Assembly as an institutional body behind. Um, but that doesn't mean that English Classical Presbyterianism is dead, um, far from it. Um, it had just evolved due to the circumstances. The London Provincial Assembly had taken over, uh, had taken over as the highest body promoting classical Presbyterianism in England. Um, and classical, classical associations appear in Cheshire and in Kenilworth in Berkshire. Now these classical associations the reason why they called classical associations rather than classical presbyteries is because of the legal status of Presbyterianism in England. Um, so instead of calling themselves a classical presbytery, um, they decided to call themselves classical associations. And the role of these classical associations were to be the benefit of ministers. So Presbyterian ministers, those who were ordained in classes, could mm-hmm. come together for, for mutual comfort and assistance. But this still shows that the Presbyterian Church in England, despite all the turbulence with Cromwell, is still functioning on some level. It hasn't completely disappeared. But there is one word of caution, because people usually associate the word association in this period with Richard Baxter. And I was very keen in my monograph to make the distinction between Richard Baxter's associations, which were sort of uh groups of ministers of many different sort of dissenting um sort of uh dissenting opinions and various congregations of worship um who didn't necessarily adhere to the westminster assembly or its liturgy whereas these classical associations drew from people who'd been ordained by a classist and used the Westminster Assembly's liturgy and, uh, and promoted classical Presbyterianism in England.
1: Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender,
2: intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world?
1: We're Jen and Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich.
2: We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world.
1: We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan.
2: We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets.
1: And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world.
2: Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist?
1: How did Presbyterianism across and within the three kingdoms recover after the Commonwealth?
2: Well, when Cromwell became Lord Protector in December 1653, he was keen to mend bridges, um, particularly with uh, the English Presbyterians. Um, And uh, so he began to appoint uh, English Presbyterians to what's called the Triers and Ejectors Committees. And these triers and ejectors committees um, were used to um, purge Anglicans, any remaining Anglicans, out of their parishes and put in uh, ministers, which the Commonwealth approved. Um, So the the Commonwealth uh, uh, approved uh, these ministers to sit on these committees. And they reached a handout to the English Presbyterians. In Scotland, there was an ordinance passed to support the universities and preachers to propagate the gospel, and Gillespie was one of the key sort of um, carriers of this ordinance up to Scotland. In Ireland, a committee was appointed um, to assist public preaching and to root out vice and looseness and promote godliness. So in these bodies, Cromwell was keen to build uh, bridges with the Presbyterians. In England, English Presbyterians were more likely to be found on the ejectors committees because of course they're ejecting Anglicans, which was part of their original function anyway in the 1640s when there had been similar committees. The, The Presbyterians were initially going to be appointed to these ejector committees to root out Anglicanism. So it was a job that English Presbyterians were used to. So it shouldn't be a surprise that when Cromwell comes to putting English Presbyterians in these uh, committees, it's the ejectors committees where they root out the Anglicans where they're mostly present. So um, I managed to work out based on um, the sort of evidence we have of the classes system in England and bear in mind the evidence we have of the classes system in England isn't uh, we don't necessarily have the full picture Um, but the best that I could um, do on the evidence that we have is that on the 17 out of the 38 ejectors committees had active classical Presbyterians on them and as I say, although it is difficult to ascertain the numbers due to the lack of the classes' records, we do know that appointments were made behind closed doors. So they would receive a letter from the, 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 the protectorate saying, Would you like to be nominated to this committee? Um, Henry Newcomb, a classical Presbyterian in Cheshire, it's his letter. And he's surprised because nobody's spoken to him, nobody's approached him and said, Would you you know, Cromwell's thinking of appointing you to this committee, He he he's surprised by this and this would suggest that appointments were made upon the suggestions of Cromwell's commanding people in that local area, who they could trust, um, who they think they could trust. So it's all done via central government to the representatives and local government and then they Approach this individual, and although being surprised, Henry Newcomb accepts the invitation. But then admits in his diary that later on, looking back, he recalls it as vanity. Now bear in mind, he wrote his diary after the Restoration, so there may be <laughs> some um, some adjustment there to maybe what to what actually happened. But that's what he says. Firstly, it's a surprise, and then we takes the appointment, he sees it as nothing but vanity. Um, But despite these appointments to the triers and ejectors committees, the English Presbyterians are still not happy with the Cromwellian protectorate. And they're still very highly critical of the regime, fearing the toleration or liberty of conscience and the need for the promotion of the profession of the clergy. Because what has happened with this uh with liberty of conscience is this, is this belief that any man can stand up and preach the Word of God, which sounds like a lovely egalitarian uh thing to believe in, and most people nowadays go well you know that that's fair enough, but that's not what it actually meant. What it meant was that shoemakers without any formal theological training or soldiers who had no uh, training or couldn't even read the Bible. Some would just stand up and say, I have a hotline to God and this is what he says. Um, some of Cromwell's soldiers in Scotland, for example, used to burst into church services, uh, pull the minister at the pulpit, stand in it, and take over the church service without warning. Um, it, 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 it is, in effect, quite chaotic when we talk about lame preaching. It's not, you know, it's not, um, it's it's maybe not as fluffy or as nice as it it may appear to be. Um, So the English Presbyterians are, are highly critical of this, and they argue that they need to argue for the continuation of professional clergy, people who are trained in theology, people who are trained to give sermons properly, people who are trained to do it as a profession. So they, they, they are quite um, honest about all the uneducated people as they see it, um, taking it upon themselves to preach the word of God. Um, and they fear that the office of minister is in danger of destruction, that, 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 uh, that the office itself will break down and the whole church will go into chaos. Um, indeed, um, Across the border, uh, Scottish ministers, particularly the resolutioners in the resolutioner and protester dispute, carry the same message forward in Scotland, encouraging people to seek out and root out those that promote liberty of conscience and uphold the standards of the Anglo-Scottish liturgy. So again, this is where the Anglo-Scottish liturgy comes in. It's like a life raft. It's like a, a signpost. It's something to cling on to, into what they see as very chaotic uh, religious times. And so they, they promote the use of the directory of worship. Um, but the Kirk itself had another fight on its hands, um, above and beyond just liberty of conscience and even its own protester and resolution dispute, although this is a particular aspect of it is the figure of Patrick Gillespie. And he's a protester, but he's a protester with a difference. He's a protester that hates other protesters. He's a a protester that hates resolutioners. He's a man very much standing on his own with a clique in Glasgow. So much so that even the fellow protester, Archibald Johnson of Warston, who was obviously one of the authors of the National Covenant and was very much into uh the the anglo-scottish alliance and was one of the key figures in the anglo-scottish alliance he is worried about gillespie and his clique taking over the scottish kirk and what patrick gillespie does is he comes back from london after um, um sucking up to Cromwell big time he comes he comes back up with an ordinance which is the ordinance that i talked about earlier which means that uh that's the uh, English government could make ministerial appointments in the Scottish Kirk. Uh, for anybody who knows anything about the history of the Scottish Kirk, the Scottish Kirk is very, very independent, even within Scotland. It's its own entity. Even the Scottish state didn't get involved in appointments. In, in that sense, it was its own self-governing body. So for Promo to turn round and try and make appointments within the Scottish Kirk is a big, big no-no to these people. Now, from Cromwell's perspective, he's not seeing England in Scotland. He's seeing greater England. He's saying, well, oh, well, the trials and ejectors is working well in England, but why don't we have a similar system in Scotland? But, of course, he's not realising the cultural difference with the churches. That The Scottish Kirk has always been fiercely independent of the state. And so this, again, puts tension. And both protesters and resolutioners are terrified of this prospect of Cromwell exercising um, uh, undue influence on the Scottish Kirk and appointments. But they do have one thing in their defence, which they take out, which is Scots law. So, Patrick Gillespie comes up with this ordinance which is very much based on the english model and scotch Cargo, well that's very nice but you've got one big problem from we don't do english law up here we have scots law and this legislation is not compatible with our legal system so just go away and that's that's what they do they fight it by using scots law and they 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 they, they make it abundantly clear that this is not legal. So this toing and froing goes on for a while. And the Gillespie tries to push it, but then he, he loses his, his confidence because he's been encircled by Morrison and other protesters and the resolutioners. In fact, on this issue, they're actually more united than divided, which is something that I wanted to 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 come across in my monograph. So Cromwell's got a problem. So it it, it sort of the ordinance floats and doesn't do much. Um, and he's he's still got a problem with the church and other problems in Scotland. But they decide to have a more civilian character in the Scottish Government post-1655. They decide to imp- So they decided to establish what's called the Scottish Council, which was supposed to be the civilian arm of what was effectively a military-occupied country. This Scottish Council was to give the Cromwellian regime a more civilian feel um, in in Scotland. And it was headed by a man um, uh, called Lord Broghill. And Lord Broghill had spent some time in Ireland and was had Scottish relatives and was aware of the complexity of the Three Kingdoms. He wasn't like Cromwell, he didn't think that the the English solution sort of fitted all. He was aware of the complexity of the Three Kingdoms. Um, So he negotiated and discussed with all sides of the Scottish character about what to do with this ordinance. And eventually the resolutioners and majority of protesters got what they wanted. they abandoned the ordinance in the favour of certificates sanctioned by the Kirk. So basically the Kirk would put forward nominations for new ministers and the Scottish Council would rubber stamp them. So the Scottish Kirk, although they had Erastian oversight, the important thing was they were still in control and this very much was a policy of containment Against Patrick Gillespie, and it was a success. Um, however, um, in Ulster, the, the church was a major success story because during the Commonwealth, and due to the public engagement and the withholding of livings, um, during the Commonwealth, the, the church was reduced to conventicle. It, it had abso- absolutely collapsed with the Cromwellian invasion. And they were even threatened with transplantation in 1653. Yes, we usually associate transplantation with the Catholic Irish, but it wasn't just the Catholic Irish that were threatened with transplantation. It was the Presbyterians as well. And this is, again, linked with Lankyren's Rising, linked with the threat of Presbyterian accommodation. They were so frustrated and scared under the English Commonwealth that... Uh, they, they had uh, threatened uh, Presbyterian ministers and their lay ministers and their lay members with transplantation to uh, uh, further south. But it wasn't carried out. Um, so that gave the church in Ulster a lifeline. And they took full advantage of this during the protectorate. So between 1653 and 1655, there were staggering 24 new congregations founded in Ulster. This is in addition to the 24 re-established congregations that had been established after the 1641 Rebellion. Um, This major success, although previously attributed by historians to state payments, It is actually, this particular period of time, between 1653 and 1655, it is actually, uh, as I found, more to do with a grassroots movement throughout the landed elite to support their ministers in any which way that they could. Um, And also during this period, there were some ministers who were appointed in and around Dublin. Between 1656 and 1659, the Ulster Presbyterian Church continued to grow at a fast pace, where there were a further 22 new congregations um, planted across the north of Ireland, even in the completely new areas such as County Armagh. Indeed, Scottish immigration would be uh replantation continued to support was continued to, to be supported by landed elites and were key factors but there was another key factor this time and this is when state payments come in during 1656 to 1659 henry cromwell takes over he was the son of Oliver cromwell he takes over the running of ireland and he like his father is trying to build bridges with Uh, Presbyterians in Ulster, so he offers them state salaries Now he's hoping that if he offers them state salaries in return they will offer the regime loyalty so they're trying to buy, even as late as 1656, they are trying to buy the Presbyterians loyalty and it appears that it's working because these state salaries are taken up and the church grows. However, doesn't mean that the loyalty was absolute because the Protectorate was still concerned about the massive influx of the Scottish interests into Ulster in the 1650s and how it was threatening English interests in the province. So there were more Scots in the province than English people, and they saw this as a threat to, to, to the regime itself. And there was continuing mistrust of the Scots by Cromwell's regime. And there's a very telling incident that happens. Uh, Cromwell avoids, Oliver Cromwell avoids being killed in in an accident, in a coaching accident. And a day of Thanksgiving is appointed throughout the Three Kingdoms. And this is in 1657. However, uh, Henry Cromwell is notified that the Ulster Presbyterians have refused Observe this day of Thanksgiving. And Henry Cromwell's absolutely furious because basically what the Ulster Presbyterians are saying is, We wish your father had died. We're not going to be grateful that he survived. That is what they're telling him. And Henry Cromwell, who has a bad temper anyway, completely loses it and apparently just you know blows a gasket about this. And he sees this as an immense act of betrayal. He's like, after all, I've given them state salaries, um, trying to be nice to them, trying to build bridges, they throw it back in my face. Eventually he calms down and and it settles down again, but there is an element of mistrust there. During this period as well, there is also notable establishments of Presbyterian ministers further south in Dublin and Tipperary. Interestingly, and this goes back to the Three Kingdoms element, where in the north you're dealing with Scottish ministers coming from Scotland. In the south, you're dealing with ministers coming from um, classical presbyteries, such as such as the ones in Wiltshire and Cheshire. And in particular, the London Provincial Assembly is in constant communication with the London gentry in Ireland for recruitment of ministers. So, again, in England, um, the the classes system again is continuing to grow and controversially and in sort of um, of, of revising established assumptions about English Presbyterianism in the 1650s, I've actually argued that there was a classical Presbyterianism revival in England in the mid-1650s. And again, I make the distinction between Richard Baxter's associations, which involved people from lots of different uh, Protestant um, dissenting backgrounds and strictly classical Presbyterian associations. Um, so, uh, so there were classical Presbyterian um, associations um, founded, um, uh, founded in. Uh, Nottingham, Norfolk, Exeter, and Cambridgeshire, which shows the extent to which the Presbyterians in England, their perseverance and and um, their hard work is paying off, that there are um, Presbyterian sort of classical organisations in Nottingham, Norfolk, Exeter, and Cambridgeshire. And as I say, these distinctions point to an English classical Presbyterian revival in the mid 1650s. In Scotland, uh, there's a similar sort of change going on. Although uh, there's not the growth that there is in Ulster in England, there is a strengthening of the Scottish Kirk in the face of uh, the Cromwellian protectorate. And this is it comes as a key moment as the uh, the the uh, protesters and resolutioners and their representatives are called down to London. Paul completely fed up with the protest and resol- resolution dispute. He's realising that this is a big impediment to getting the Scottish church to adhere to, to conform to an English system. So he thinks if he takes the protesters and resolutioners down to London, and they have discussions face to face, he personally can sort out the problem with the Scottish Kirk. And what happens is Gillespie is quite, he feels like he's the man, so he he walks into these negotiations and he's very, very arrogant. He tells uh, Lord Warriston that he had possessed everyone around him and that's a direct quote, he possessed everyone around him, he was in control. So, you know, he was the boss. And Morrison was very concerned about this, and this was an indication of maybe the corruption of Gillespie's influence and of the fact that maybe he was getting above himself. So, Warrison is very concerned about this. Um, however, the real sort of hero that saved the Scottish current during these discussions was James Sharp, who was a resolutioner. He was a young. Uh, Resolutioner minister. He later becomes Archbishop James short after the, the Restoration. So it is the same man, and he's summoned to London to represent the Resolutioners, and he takes a different tack. He realises when he goes down that Gillespie has the upper hand. The way to, to to sink Gillespie's influence is to network as hard as he possibly can to make friendships, to try kind of work with the regime, try kind of and be personable so he can make connections and he's very very successful in this and this turns the tide for the Scottish Kirk. So James Sharp makes friends with key figures in Cromwell's government such as John Thurlow who's the Secretary of State, and uh, Dr Wilkins who's Cromwell's brother-in-law and they in themselves send good reports back to Cromwell about how great James Sharp is, how wonderful he is to work with, uh, in contrast, Gillespie's gone into these meetings thinking he's the man, he's he's very arrogant. He's obviously, um, he's very ploughed up by his position and he does come across as very arrogant uh, and very rude to Oliver Cromwell. So the, the tide begins to turn against Gillespie um, and, and the protesters more generally. Um, so uh, that, that it, that's what starts to happen. And to nail that down even further, and this is where the covenanted interest again comes in in the Anglo-Scottish Alliance. It hasn't the connections and the context haven't completely disappeared in the 1650s. Because one of the key elements of the support structure that James Sharp has in London is the fact that he is friends with all these London Presbyterians, and they are supporting him from the back. They're saying, go and speak to Thurlow. Because Thomas Manton, for example, London Presbyterian, he's known Thurlow for a couple of years. He says, go and speak to him. Um, So they tell him who to talk to. They tell him to to network with. So the Anglo-Scottish Alliance plays a key role in providing support for James Sharp to protect the Scottish Kirk um, from being overwhelmed uh, by Gillespie and by Cromwell's, Cromwell's plants. And effectively Cromwell is eventually persuaded to abandon the Lesby and the plans for, to, to, for the ordinance and they stick with the current situation with certificates. So Oliver Cromwell dies in September 1658 and the monarchy is restored in 1660. Now that period itself would cover an entire podcast so I'm not going to go Uh, into all the different changes of government there. Um, But uh, despite all the overturnings of government and the changes of government that happened in this period, and there were many, Presbyterianism continued to uh, assert itself and, and in particular in Ulster, it continued to grow. In fact, it was so busy in Ulster and there were so many congregations that in 1659, They founded a synod in Ballymena in in 1659, and the synod is the structure right at the top. So you have a synod, a presbytery, and then you have congregation. The fact that the Ulster Presbyterian Church is founding a synod in Ballymena means they have enough congregations to call together a synod, which is quite an achievement if you think about where they were in 1652. Conventicling with the church collapsed. Likewise, English classes continue to promote um, promote uh, the, the Presbyterian church structure. And under Richard Cromwell in particular, key Presbyterian church books, such as The Just Divinum, were published in 1658. Um, the Kirk continues to ignore official days of Thanksgiving. By the English government still, so they're still resisting it despite Richard Cromwell um, inheriting the government. But Richard Cromwell, interestingly enough, is quite amenable to the Presbyterian system. In fact, under him there is a discussion about establishing Presbyterian church government again throughout the three kingdoms and on the grounds of the Solemn Covenant that it provides a good solution. Uh, And the Anglo-Scottish liturgy in this period is is repeatedly published by the English press. However, with the fall of Richard Cromwell and the re-emergence of the English Republican government, hopes were dashed. And and interestingly, uh, unfortunately, in this period, Patrick Gillespie again is pushed to the front because, of course, he was pushed to the front by the English Republic back in uh, 1653. So he, again, gets handpicked when English republicanism government comes back. Um, but curiously, um, the English Republic managed to persuade Archibald Johnston of Woriston to take an appointment uh, to the council uh, in London. Now, this was an appointment that Warriston later regretted, but I think we have to explain why Worcester decided to take this appointment, because it's very, very curious. Throughout the 1650s, he's been resisting Cromwell as much as he can. And then when the English government, when the English Republic in uh, 1659 offer him this position, he takes it. Why? Well, um, as he admits in his diary, when Cromwell dies in September 1658, he sees this as a sign of God's providence, a sign that uh, God is favouring the covenanted interest again because the instrument that is preventing the covenanted revolution from succeeding has been removed, and that instrument that has been removed is Oliver Cromwell. That impediment of Oliver Cromwell is dead, he's gone. So Warson sees this as a sign that perhaps the covenanting interest is going to be in favour again. So that explains the odd behaviour from Morrison. He actually goes down to London thinking he can persuade the English Republican government to rethink the church system. But of course, as well, you have obviously during Richard Cromwell's time, he was more open to it. So whether that also fed into Morrison's decision to accept this this, this position, I don't know, but I suspect that it might have done. So that's the the context for his strange acceptance of this role. But as you'll read in his diary, uh, uh, when he goes down, as he tries to persuade these English Republicans to enact the Somnium Covenant, he's quite swiftly rebutted. And he's told that the agreement to the people by the Levellers is far more relevant to England um, and by extension, Ireland and Scotland as well, than the Solomonian Covenant. So he's quickly rebuffed and as I say, he regrets accepting the appointment in London. Um, but one of the key reasons why he was there was that he wanted also to keep an eye on Gillespie. And Sharp was there as well, keeping an eye on Gillespie as well, and keeping him suppressed. So that both of them managed to encircle Gillespie and and keep him suppressed from um, pulling this ordinance back up to Scotland and and reigniting it. Um, As the restoration approached, um, the Presbyterians were filled with hope and excitement because the king was coming back. So they thought that if the king is coming back, that um, that means that we could maybe have a covenanted uh, three kingdoms again. So they were quite excited. Even Warriston was quite excited, which is quite ironic considering what was going to happen to him later on. He was even quite excited about it and then realised, oh, I'm not, um, I'm not in the good books uh, with the king. But they were all generally quite excited. Um, but this hope for a covenant of three kingdoms ultimately ends in disappointment because in Ireland, only a minority. Of uh, ministers um, support a covenanted monarch. They try and rally support, but a lot of the ministers are going towards the Anglican Church. So this whole idea um, uh, falls apart. Um, for English and English Presbyterian and Scottish Presbyterian um, ministers, they actually put together a de- delegation. Um, they were separate, but there is clearly collusion between the two of of Sharp and his English counterpart with before they go over to Breda to speak to to, uh, Charles II and they have these discussions and Charles II is very nice, very amenable, very personable, sees them, talks to them and they feel like they're getting somewhere but they know that it's not maybe going to be successful but they they have a hope that that it will be successful. But of course, when Charles II returns in May 1660, he swiftly reasserts his royal prerogative, and he swiftly reasserts the Anglican Church in England, uh, the Church of Ireland in Ireland, and the Episcopal Church in Scotland. And the covenants themselves are burned by the hangman, they are outlawed, and anybody who um, promotes the Covenants, adheres to the Covenants, is considered an outlaw and a traitor to the monarchy.
1: So to finish up this fascinating interview, um, I'll ask the question I've asked everyone so far. Do you recognise the term Scottish Revolution? Do you believe there was a Scottish Revolution?
2: Um, no, not really. Um, and I'll, I'll I'll tell you why. Um, it, it really the term Scottish Revolution really comes from David Stevenson. Now, at the time, the use of the Scottish Revolution as a term was perfectly acceptable because this was in the 1970s. and at this time, uh, Christopher Hill's perspective on the English Revolution, which uh, he he uh, promoted. Uh, which involved, obviously, the levellers and the diggers and this idea that England had gone through a revolution, sort of Marxist revolution from below, um, was all the rage. It was very, very fashionable. Um, So when David Stevenson was writing his book, and he admitted this himself, he just decided to call it the Scottish Revolution because that's what was going on at the time. Um, So, no, not really, but it is a reflection Of when the book was written and what was fashionable at the time and what historians were thinking, so it's not a criticism of David Stevenson per se or the idea of the Scottish Revolution. It's just to understand where it came from. Um, But I still believe in a very much a three kingdoms um, perspective because the Stuarts ruled over three very diverse kingdoms, and although At the moment, historians have somewhat retreated back into national histories of Scotland, Ireland, and England during this period. I still believe that regardless, I think many historians in this period will still see um, uh, the the 17th century as a century of three Stuart kingdoms, rather than just as uh, separate entities of Scotland, England and Ireland.
1: Dr. Kirstine McKenzie, thank you so much for your time today.
2: Thank you for having me.
3: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.